0: Today we're going to be concluding our series in passages. I It's been a great time hearing from a number of people who have been involved in the Genesis leadership in some form or another. Uh, this morning, Ted is going to be sharing with us. Ted is a part of the leadership of Genesis, and more than that, Ted has been a friend of mine for many years. I've been very, uh, felt a very kindred spirit with Ted, maybe it's because we have Endured three boys and one girl, Um, no offense, guys. Uh, It's just something that has brought us together as we've gone through uh, things as parents together, Uh, but I do consider him a a dear friend, someone who has been there for me in the times of need, and I appreciate him so much, and I know we're going to enjoy hearing from him. So, Ted, come on up. Thank you, Sam.
1: I appreciate that. It's an honor and a blessing uh, to be here this morning. I had not originally signed up to speak, but when Sam said, take a risk, he said, what the heck, I'm but a risk taker. And so it's really been a dream of mine to be up here at one time. You think it's easy, but it it really isn't. So all of my predecessors, I'm sure they know exactly what's uh, taking place right now. But speaking of dreams, back in 1980, you all know the predominant, preeminent basketball team in the United States was the Los Angeles Lakers. Center was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the forwards were Spencer Hayward and Jamal Wilkes, the guards were Norm Nixon and Mr. Irvin Magic Johnson. The head coach was Paul Westphal. Now, people know on Saturdays, used to be there, used to be the opportunity for people to scrimmage the Lakers on Saturday if you were selected to do that. So this one Saturday, my brother, my friend Frank, uh, the Buffer Johnson. Alvin play, played head, Dave, and another friend of mine, Ron Hamilton, were chosen to actually scrimmage. So we got that opportunity. Now, you played to five. The key rule was you couldn't touch the Lakers. Now, they could maul you and mug you, but you couldn't touch them. So they let you bring the ball in. So we got the ball in. We went down the court. My friend Ron had pulled up for a 20-foot jump shot and made it 2 to nothing. Norm Nixon brings the ball in to Irving Magic Johnson. He passes it back over to Norm Nixon. Alvin steals the ball, and that's why Norm Nixon got traded the next year for Byron Scott. <laughs> Went back down the court, made it two to nothing now. And you know that infuriated Magic Johnson be down two to nothing to a bunch of scrubs coming in from the Pomona Upland area. So we come back in, it's two to nothing, we get the ball, Norm Nixon brings it in again. This time my brother, being aggressive as he was, popped Norm Nixon, took the ball, and he throws it to me, and I'm at mid court. So I get the ball. I'm coming down the court and standing right there in front of the basket in front of me is Mr. Kareem Abdul Jabbar, all <laughs> seven foot two of him. And I say to myself, Ted, you get this one opportunity. So I'm going to slam dunk this ball right on top of his seven foot two <laughs> chrome dome. So I come down the court, go behind my back, I'm left handed, I come right down the middle and I leap as high as I could. And I'm getting ready to slam that ball down on that seven-foot-two bronze-chrome dome of his head. And I fall out of bed and wake up. (laughs) Now, I told you that was a dream. Let me tell you something that isn't a dream. And that's the scripture and the passage that I chose today for myself. So let's open up your Bibles to Psalm 1, verse 1 and 6. Psalm 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. And you'll see why that this particular passage has been a ministry to me throughout my 26 years walking as a Christian. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I read this daily. In the time allotted for me uh, this morning, I think you'll see why I read this on a daily level, because it's been for inspiration, for correction, and guidance for myself, for illumination as a beacon of light that I could be to my family, the people that I work with, the young people that I minister to once a month here at Genesis, and for revelation and communicating the truth. This passage to me is about choices, making wise choices. And many of you know, the I'm a, I'm a movie buff, and so I've watched all three of the Indiana Jones movies multiple times. And there's one line in the third one. If you remember, Indy and Sean Connery were after the Holy Grail. And they go into that little cave with the Knight templar. And the villain comes in, and he looks him, looks for the the little uh, cup, and he chose the opulent, ornate, bejeweled cup for him to drink, and he drinks from it, and what happens? He disintegrates. And what were those immortal words that the Knight Templar said? You choose poorly. And life is about choices. This opening psalm emphasizes our choices. And so think about this as I... Take my time this morning. Two persons, two paths, two destinies. Again, that's two persons, two paths, and two destinies. And the wise choice, of course, it tells you in verses 1 to 3 is about making a wise choice. Now, that was not me. When I said it was two persons, when people asked me to talk about myself, I said, Do you want to know before Christ or after Christ? they want to know before Christ. So, before Christ, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles uh, uh, in a housing project called Nickerson Gardens, which still exists, by the way. And I was starting in 1950, went to a school called Grave Street, and then I moved from there to 1958, moved to East Los Angeles. And those of you might be familiar with East Los Angeles, and uh, grew up on the East Side, Went to school, to 28th, uh, 28th Street School, then went to John Adams Junior High School. And then my stepfather moved us to a foreign country called Pomona in 1963. <laughs> now, imagine coming from South Central and East Los Angeles to Pomona in 1963 when the San Bernardino Freeway was two lanes east and two lanes west, and there was no such thing as Benelli Park. It was Puddingstone. And you could actually hunt, and nobody stopped you. Mm-hmm. But I grew up not making the correct choices. And I have told my Sunday school class this multiple times. And what I mean by that is I grew up a liar, a cheat, loved to drink, loved to gamble, and was a womanizer. And that was all before the age of five. So you can imagine what it was like when I hit my teenage years and my puberty years. Grew up in Pomona. Went to local schools. Uh, blessed enough to go to a decent college uh, like Laverne, and then came into my uh, – graduated from there and went on to, to teach. The real issue, though, was is that my problem was it was like putting a fox in the hen house because you got to understand those turbulent times in the 60s. The Vietnam War was just coming off, for those who can remember that, the kind of things that were going on in hate ashbury and so a lot of the choices that I made were not beneficial to what I thought I was going to become, uh, to the point that I ended up becoming uh, one of the, uh, the professors at a local establishment that my brother Joe brought up during his, his first, uh, when he did his, his talk, and that was called L.A. County Jail. Because remember, I was a liar and a cheat. Now, of course, I always thought I was making these plans from my mind that I could always get away with things. Not knowing for whom the Lord loves, he's going to chastise. And so I got several little behind kickings before I got myself together and got it right. And I was at that little facility down there off of Grand Avenue, it was called the Towers. I was down there multiple times, and to the point that they called me the professor. Now, that's not a title you wouldn't be proud of, but the fact that I was halfway smarter than the rest of them, I got to actually be the trustee to actually orchestrate that. And you think I would have learned my lessons by being at that facility. And also, I was a teacher at the time. Just imagine that. Here I was teaching and still having to do those kinds of things and and to correct myself and move myself forward. Not that I'm proud of that, but it did set the foundation for something that I was longing for because I was always empty, vacant, dark. always thinking of things as nothing that was right, nothing that was correct. I think many of you in this room can probably identify with that. Always longing for something that was not there, Didn't know what it was until I came across that in July of 1979. Uh, Most of my summer jobs had always been with the gas company, digging ditches. Anybody's girl, $2.97, that was more than the minimum wage. And then I saw this uh, signed little postcard on the school door saying, an Analyst Wanted. I said, hey, well, I can, I can do that. I can go be an analyst. So I went and applied for this job in Claremont and walked in and met this young lady. It was run by a gentleman named Elton O'Brien. and met this young lady named Margie O'Brien. And I thought to myself, and she's introduced myself, and so, so, so oh, you're Mr. Robinson. Because I had taught her brother, and I had taught a younger sister during that time. And I thought, wow, gosh, nice-looking young lady. Maybe me try to talk to her, you know. I was almost like Sam, and you saw Sam in those pictures, had the little hat on, and you know, the little dashiki, and those kind of things. We thought we were pretty cool. So I thought the same thing. And so, you know, I asked her that out for a date. Uh, the answer was no. And I figured maybe she said no because, heck, you know, she had ten brothers and sisters. All the brothers were named after apostles, and the girls were all named Mary. So I thought, heck, maybe I better change my name. Oh, God. But when she finally gave me the opportunity to take her on a date, it was the first time I personally had been told no on anything. Because I figured I could always create, craft, devise, invent a conversation to make something happen. To the point that it was known that when I actually got on a date with her, she brought her little sister with her. And we didn't go to see a real movie, we had to go see the Muppet movie. <laughs> and her little sister sat in the middle. And I said, well, but it was something that, okay, this is what I want. This is what I at least try to, you know, strive for. And then when I went to go, uh, you know, in her family, you had to go meet the father. And so when the father took me out and uh, took me to, some of you probably remember Bob's Big Boys on Indian Hill. And when you get off the freeway, I see Dennis nodding his head. It doesn't exist anymore. And only as an Irishman could ask it, and I will not repeat verbatim what he asked me, but his comment was, before you sit down, don't give me any of your black, you know what, because I just want to know what your line is. I want to know what it is right now. And so as I articulated what I thought my role might be in dating his daughter, he let me know what the rules, regulations, and the policies and procedures were. So I understood that right from the get-go. But as I finally got that one opportunity to be alone with her, my wife was talking to me about the Lord. I had you know, I, I taught two years at Pomona Unified, 12 at the Archdiocese. I thought I'd do what all that was about. But that's not what it was about. And she led me to the Lord that September 2, 1979. But... It was all part of my master plan. Okay, yeah, I can accept Jesus Christ. I'll follow that. And so until the day I got married, when we got married two years later, what did I do? I defaulted right back to the old me. Went right back to having an intimate relationship with Jose, Jim. You know who I'm talking about, Jose, Jim, and Jack. Yeah. For those of you who don't get carried away, I'm talking about beverages here. Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, Jose Cuervo, that's what I meant. okay. But that's not what she was about. And she thought, got married, you accepted the Lord, but now you do right, right back. And then you start going back with your buddies, the Guzman brothers, Bumbo and Vincent and, and Billy, and hanging out with Mondo. Because remember, I was tricultural. Grew up in South Central, grew up in East LA, grew up in Pomona. I can move in and out of any one of those worlds very, very easily. And enjoyed them, too. Really enjoyed them. But something catastrophic happened to me in April of 1986 that just changed the whole dynamics. I had two children, and I did not want those first two boys, one of them's here, the young one's on the way. I didn't want them to grow up as I did. So those five years, I gave my wife nothing but grief. Didn't go to church. And every Sunday she'd go to church. She'd go out there to West Covina and she'd bring out these little tapes from this guy. She said it was I would identify with. Had an accent. Didn't understand him half the time. Had to play him two or three times. But his name was Raul Reese. So she played those tapes often. and used to make me mad because I'd be trying to watch football games with my two dogs. But she wouldn't want to do it. And so finally she played one of those tapes one time to the point I got so mad, I just took them out and just undid them all, just did every one of them. And as she stood there very patiently. She was there praying for me, and I got sick of that too. So I tried to chase her around the bedroom because I was going to give her what for. And as you know, the rug, I hit that rug, and like in the cartoons, I slipped and fell, started to laugh. The next Sunday I went. And I never heard something more profound than hearing from Raw Reese. And talking about how the Lord loves you. And I accepted Christ for real that April 1986. And that changed the dynamics of my life. And if you know what that means, that means going through the Bible line by line, scripture by scripture, paying attention. And that's how I came across Psalm 1 because there's nothing more defining than that particular passage to me. The first three verses couldn't be more crystal clear and cogent in talking about Making the right choices. Or the last three verses, which tells you what's going to happen to you if you don't accept them. The wages of sin are what? Death. That's all I need to hear. I don't need to be scared anymore than just hearing that piece. So as I accepted Christ, come back to this, but even when you accept Christ, it doesn't mean everything is fine and it's going to be hunky-dory for you, and it's going to be just genteel. Because even after Christ, I still had issues. Now, I preface by saying I take full responsibility for everything I ever did. It had nothing to do with my background, where I grew up. I don't like hearing those excuses. I know a lot of people like to make them. I grew up, and I don't, don't want to hear it. You, we are responsible for all we do. In the 19... 99, after coming to the Lord and 13 or 14 years of marriage, I hit the default button again, causing a major rift with my wife. Now, my boys didn't know because, you know, they to this day, they, they didn't think we have an, had an argument. I thought, yeah, right. But I hit that default button and went right back. But. Because of that foundation that my wife and I had laid with each other, being in prayer, being in fellowship, being in the word, we were able to withstand it. And it's almost like, if you guys are familiar with, I'm a student of of geography and history, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was built in 1975 to 1977. It's 800 miles long, and it's built through an earthquake zone. And the engineers, when they put that together, were deciding, how do we lay this large pipe going across 800 miles to earthquake zone? And what they designed was building that, that thing on Teflon sliders because they knew eventually an earthquake was going to hit. So on November the 3rd, 2002, sure enough, a 7.9 earthquake hit that pipe. But because that foundation had been laid, The ground moved 18 feet, but nothing happened to that pipe. Nothing, because the engineers had taken that time in advance to think about it, put it all together, and make sure that when that earthquake did come, those pipeline sliders would work. And that's a lot like our marriages, because please believe me, earthquakes are going to come in our family life. They're going to happen, whether with our spouse or with our children. They're going to happen, brothers and sisters. That's going to happen for us. But if we've laid that foundation early on, and we've been in prayer, and we've been in fellowship, we've been in the word, we've asked for help, we can withstand those. And yes, I've been able to withstand it. And what I learned to do was treat my wife, because I'm a consultant, as my number one client. I told my boys, when she says something twice, hey, pay attention. (laughs) That means she wants it. But she wants something to happen. I remember my oldest boy who he was here today asked me one time, and mom was having a discussion with me. He peeked his head in and said, Dad, it's hard being married, isn't it? I go, no, son, it, it really isn't. I love your mother, and I've learned how to manage your mother. Okay? And I said, he said, how'd you do that? I said, well, let me tell you how I've learned to do that. Number one, you know, because she sits right there with that little angelic face. Okay? You know, I've been married 30-plus years, and so I've learned to listen for her because I know every two or three times a year, you know, mom's going to have something to say to somebody. And so we start paying attention to those kinds of things. And so We don't want no major meltdowns. Now, as I was told, because when mom has those little meltdowns, I got the cleanest garage in Upland. Cause i get out there and start sweeping, dusting, and mopping. But what that means is you've got to start making our spouse our number one client. And working with them. And that goes for our children and even all of us here. Even in our little small band of Genesis as we come together. And that's what Sam is constantly trying to do. That's why he created passages. I've never heard anybody doing anything like this. But letting all of us that wanted to stand up here and talk about the passages that mean things to us and that are very close to us and have relevance to each and every one of us. So even, like I said, afterwards, you know, accepting the Lord, uh, there's problems. Because, you know, our adversary, the devil, is what? He's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. Now, just because you accepted the Lord doesn't mean he's not going to come after us, because he is. And he will find all kinds of weak spots to nail us, and we know what those are. And so we've got to be very paying very close attention to what happens in that particular spot. The wise person, as I said, this is all about choices. The wise person accentuates the positive, makes decisive choices. But sometimes that's difficult because we know what happens when we start thinking. Because the mind is the battlefield. That's where the genesis takes place of whether we're going to make that wise choice or that poor choice. Now, The first three verses, verse 1 to 3, very easy for us to comprehend. Not being the counsel of the ungodly, do not stand in the path of sinners. We know who those folks are, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But verses 4 and 5, the poor choices, those are the tough ones. Do I miss some of the things that I used to do? No, but do I think about them? Yes. A lot of us can attest to that, especially you men. I know I'm not by myself. I couldn't be. There's too many other folks in there with me when I was there. So I know that. But that means being empty. That means like being the chaff, being worthless. Just like the stuff they threw out to their wives if they made turkeys. Worthless leftovers. Instead of that transplanted tree that we all want to be, being prosperous. And I don't mean prosperous being for monetary reasons being useful with your brothers and sisters and your family members and the people within our communities. The things that we have going on here at Genesis, where it's working with the homeless, going to Haiti, any of all the things that we're doing for the women, for the men, for the children. Remember I said to you earlier, it's about two paths, two persons, two paths, two destinies. And so I'd like to close with the following. Because I'm all about stories. I, as I said to somebody, I, I present 50, 60 times a year, but this is the first time I've ever done it in this particular setting. And, and Alex kept coming over talking to me, are you nervous? Are you nervous? Heck yeah, I was nervous. I've never done this. Not in this setting. You're just being ornery and mean. <laughs> but just to close with this. Remember? Two persons, two paths, two destinies. A young intern, psychiatrist, was making his first round during the day, his first round ever at a psychiatric treatment place. And he's with the lead doctor and they come to a patient and they come to a cell. His door is open, the cell door is open, but he's inside the cell and all he's doing is the following. Linda, 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 Linda. And the internist asked the doctor, what is his problem? Oh, he was engaged to this young lady named Linda, and she jilted him and walked away. So he got him, okay. So he goes to the next cell. Door was closed. Locked. Guy inside. And that guy's going, Linda, Linda, Linda. And the young internist asks the doctor, what's his problem? Oh, he married Linda. (laughs) So you see, the grass is not greener on the other side. (laughs) Make the appropriate choices. That's all this is about. Two paths. Two persons, two destinies. We know what the right path is. And that's choosing the way of the righteous, verses 1 to 3. If we choose verses 4 to 5, we know where that leads. And that goes for you young folks in particular. Because there were times I didn't think I'd get to be 30. I'm 61 now. Because okay? my wife won't let me eat anything I like to eat. So that's probably one of the reasons why. But young people in particular, pay attention. Listen to us. We didn't get to be this age by being too stupid. We got to be here. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this glorious Sunday. We thank you for giving us a wise pastor who's allowed us to be able to have discussions in regards to What passages are benefiting each and every one of us and what we go through on a daily basis? We ask for your blessings now in all that we do, and we all said, Amen. Pastor Sam.
0: I didn't know that Margie had her sister go on your first date. Corrine had her brother go on ours. (laughs) We have more in common than I thought. you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 17. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a few scriptures that have impacted me as far as believing that God wanted me to take a step, to move forward. One was Joshua 3.5 where the Lord told Joshua to step into the Jordan and then he would do the work. Unlike Moses where he had to raise his staff and then God did the work and they got to cross on dry land and also in 1 Kings 19 where Elisha was going to follow Elijah and he broke the plow, and he offered the ox as an offering, and left behind the comfort and what he had known to to press on to do something new, and how God had nudged me in that same way, saying, if you want to see me work, you need to trust me, and you need to get out of your comfort zone, and, and you need to move forward. As I began to do that, the passage here in Acts was another one that was very key and instrumental in shaping how I moved forward. And I have to tell you at the beginning that this is a passage that's filled with controversy, of course. Those are the ones I I draw to. It's just something that becomes very trying in a lot of people's minds. And and just real quickly, I want to give you... A little bit of the argument of why this is a problem here in Acts with some people and give you a brief rebuttal and just my take on things. A lot of people feel that what Paul did here in Acts chapter 17 was actually wrong. They believe that Paul was making, uh, he was acting in the flesh, basically, as he spoke to these people in Athens. And they believe this because after here in Athens, we see that Paul goes to Corinth and in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the second chapter, he says, I didn't come to you, Corinthians, with eloquent speech, but I came just with simplicity for I didn't seek to know human wisdom. And we're going to see that he's dealing with that wisdom here in Acts 17. But he said, I came to teach you just simply Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came with fear and trembling And their take is that Paul was so upset with what he did wrong in Acts 17 that he changed his ways when he went to Corinth. And so we should not take this Acts 17 as a model because Paul was wrong. here's Here's two of the problems. I have a lot of problems wrong with that, but here's two of them. If we were to interpret Scripture by our intuition we could get in a lot of trouble. In other words, if I take what I believe and then interpret the scripture based on what I believe instead of context, you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. And you have to insinuate a lot of things to come up with that interpretation. You have to insinuate that Paul was wrong where the passage doesn't say he's wrong. Luke doesn't say what Paul made a mistake. We don't see any record saying that this was wrong. We insinuate it in another passage, and we attach it to this one. I think that's bad exegesis. That's not a good way to interpret Scripture. Second problem I have is this isn't the first time Paul did this. He did this in chapter 14 as well, with Lystra, in the cities Lystra and Derbe with Barnabas, another Greek city where they... Killed a man who was lame and the people freaked out and they wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, and he said, Stop. And what he shares there in chapter fourteen is very, very similar, in fact, some bit almost identical to what happens here in seventeen. And so did Paul make two mistakes? And and think about that. I mean, just I am going to say that Paul the Apostle blew it twice. And now we have more insight. At, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, and so what he did was different. And so we're going to look at this controversy here and talk about it a little bit and why it has so impacted me. Beginning in chapter 16, Paul has left Silas and Timothy, and while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? I love that. They call Paul the chief theologian of the church a babbler. It makes me feel good about myself. (laughs) You know, sometimes I leave Sunday and I, I just think, oh gosh, Well, at least what I said was true, you know, even if no one understood it. But Paul, they called him a babbler. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him to and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know more what this new teaching is you are presenting you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So we start off with Paul moving into Athens, the the chief city of human wisdom, the home of Aristotle, adopted home of Plato, Socrates. It is the center of human wisdom. Even to this day, philosophy, we, we think of this as the birthplace. And as Paul goes there, it says that he was distressed. That word distressed, it means that he, something was grating on him. It's the idea of two metals rubbing against each other. The other day, my neighbor was scraping off the siding on, on the house, and I was inside my office, and I heard this... It was like that chalkboard with nails thing going... And you know, you're just sitting there. I look outside, and there he is, just scraping it, scraping it. It just grated on him. And and what happened is it distressed him so much that it prompted him to do something. And you see, one of the things that, that struck me in this passage was when I see people who are worshiping falsely, because we all worship something, when I see people who are given to whatever kind of idolatry it might be, whatever you might fill this blank in with, am I distressed? Do I care? And I, find my, I found myself being a person who was full-time in ministry. And I would see those who are lost and, and worshiping what they don't know and given to some form of idolatry And I would think to myself, oh, that's a shame. But I wasn't so distressed that it moved me. I thought that's a shame, but I did nothing about it. I went back into my office and I did the things that I did. And I was a part of, quote, the work of God, but I wasn't a part of these people's lives. It didn't distress me so much that it moved me. But it says here that it distressed Paul, so he went to what he was used to doing, going into the synagogues. And there he spoke to the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, those who knew knew the Hebrew Scriptures. And he began to debate with them. And the word debate there is dialogame. It's the idea of dialogue. He started discussing with them. And then later on, it says that not only did he debate them, but it says that he was also reasoning with them. And so here he's reasoning, he's interacting with both these Jews, Greeks, and then out in the marketplace day by day talking to the people of Athens and anyone who happened to come by the way. And so Paul didn't just stay in the synagogue. He then moved out and had this kind of debate had this dialogue, had this discussion with people, talking about Jesus and the resurrection. So we know that Jesus was a part of this conversation. He wasn't just talking philosophy. And then they invite him to speak more. And this is where I believe Paul's world just gets turned inside out. This is where Paul is finding himself in a foreign territory, speaking to people who do not know the story of A Messiah who do not even know what a Messiah is and you see when we we talk about Jesus Christ Christ means Messiah we just assume that everyone knows Jesus is the Messiah they didn't even know what a Messiah was and he's gonna go and speak to them and so he does get put in front of them in verse 22 Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, and now what Paul's going to say here? Again, people today, even theologians, think that what Paul is speaking here is heresy. That I'd make you. Just wanted to throw that out there, so you'd be interested. <laughs> Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, "People of Athens." I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, so that so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. These words still give me chills as I read it. Paul, first of all, comes up to them and he pays them a compliment. We know that they were given to idolatry, but he doesn't come up to them and say, you guys, you're a bunch of idolaters. He says, you guys are very religious. He pays them a compliment. It would be the equivalent today of telling someone, you know, you're very spiritual. Oh, thank you. Yes, I am spiritual. He says, you're very religious. In fact, I saw this idol with this inscription to the unknown God. And so, what you're ignorant of, what you don't know, I want to make that known to you. Talk about setting the plate. Talk about laying a foundation. Talk about appealing to them. You see, everything that Paul does here seems to me so clear an example of what Jesus said when he said we are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And so Paul starts off and he lays the table for them, saying that they're very religious. And he wants to talk to them about this God that they don't know. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temple built with human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul. You ever read the scriptures and, and you, you hear what you think it's supposed to say, but you don't really hear what it says? This is one of those passages. Became followers of who? Jesus? Who does it say they became followers of? Paul thank you someone's there paying attention someone's awake it's getting warm in here we fall asleep it says they became followers of Paul and believed believed in Jesus but they became followers of Paul and believed in Jesus among them was Dionysius a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Damaris and a number of others the reason people have a hard time with this passage is because when Paul gets up to speak he doesn't begin with the Hebrew scriptures. He begins with their scriptures, their writings. And you see, we have had this idea, and this is where it started to reshape how I'm saying things, is we've had this idea, I'm in, I know Jesus, you're out. If you want to get in, you need to accept Jesus Repent, and then you can get in with me, and then you can hear from God, like I do. But Paul is not presenting this as, this is exclusive and you need to come in. Paul is saying God is inclusive. In fact, God is all around you. He is speaking to your own poets, and you don't even know it. He is talking, not just to me, but he says he is speaking to us. God did this so that we would seek after him, reach out for him, though he is not far from any one of us. We have built a fence and said if you want to hear from God, you need to join our circuit, you need to accept Jesus, then you can come into the fenced area. What Paul is saying here is God has dug a well and there is no fence and even your own poets can hear the truths of God even though they are ignorant of who he is. This challenges how we view things. Now, is Paul saying the scriptures aren't important? And is Paul saying that Jesus isn't? No, he's, he's... This isn't the destination. This is the starting point. And I've had it in my mind so many times that when I meet someone, I have to get them to the final destination right away. You guys know what I'm talking about? I need to I need to close the deal. I need to sell this because... Tomorrow, you can leave, get hit by a car, you'll die, and then you'll go to hell and I'll be responsible because I didn't sell you Jesus. I'm being facetious, but that's the impression that I've had. And I've heard the stories of, of, you know, the Chicago fires and I forget who it was, Finley or someone who let everyone go home and then the people died and fired. And he said, I will always give an altar call. Uh, you know, I had all this pressure. I remember the first time I went street witnessing. to sing. I I went with this group and I wore this shirt and the shirt had this kind of street sign, those yellow street signs that say caution only. This one had an arrow pointing up and an arrow pointing down and below it it said the choice is yours. And I went there and everyone was like, oh, cool shirt, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to preach with my shirt. And I went there and I went to this park and I had my Thompson chain reference King James Bible. It was a huge Bible because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I went to this park and I went and saw this guy and he looked like a friendly guy and as nervous as could be. And I walked up to this guy with my Bible and I said, excuse me, sir, can I tell you about Jesus Christ? And I remember him saying, please, I just came here to be with my kids. What do I do? I've got important news. You could, if something, a slide falls down, kills you, you're going to go to hell and I'll be responsible for not telling you the gospel. But inside me, I felt like, leave this guy alone. He wants to be with his kids. This isn't the time. And you see, I didn't even have a dialogue with him. I was just trying to sell him Jesus. And so this idea of debating and reasoning became a really important focal point that Paul didn't just come up and he just tried to close the deal. What Paul did is he tried to present to them something that they could understand and he used their own writings to get them to understand the truths of God that have been declared in the scriptures that we are talking about and have been talking about through this series. I remember once I started sharing this, the importance of dialoguing and talking to people a friend at the time, another pastor, wrote to me. And he said, you know, bro, I have a hard time with people broing me. Don't bro me till you know me. Uh, (laughs) You know, bro, as I read the word, I find it cuts across all cultures because they suffer from the same old thing, sin. And as I study the word, I find that Jesus was always straightforward with people. He didn't dialogue. He was very real with them and let the chips fall where they may. If that's not an effective way to communicate, then nothing is. He didn't dialogue. You see, that sounds very spiritual. That sounds very, you know, yeah, I'm not compromising. I'm going to just give him Jesus. I remember one pastor when I was going to do my first wedding and I said, I've never done a wedding. What do you say? And he goes, just give him the gospel. But it's a wedding. He goes, I say the same thing, whether I marry him or bury him, I just give him the gospel that horrified me, you know, (laughs) because I wasn't married yet. And I was thinking, what does that mean? But so many people have this idea. You just, you say the same thing. You just give, you just sell them Jesus. Now they don't say sell them Jesus, but that's how I'm interpreting it. You just close the deal. But Paul was about the dialogue. In fact, real quickly, turn to, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became, this is the Greeks, like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. There it is again. We hear something, we interpret it the way we think it should say, but what does it say? That by some means who should save some? I should save some. Doesn't say that Jesus will save some. He says that I will save some. You see, Paul had this personal responsibility. It is my duty to save some. Now, he himself isn't the one doing the saving, but he is the method. That's why they followed Paul and believed in Jesus. He had the responsibility to get them to believe. And so he wanted to become all things to all people, that by any possible means, he might save some. This is what distressed him. This is what pushed him. This is what motivated him. He saw his responsibility to communicate effectively the truth of who Jesus is to those who don't know. And he started in a place that they could understand. So many times we wonder, why aren't we being effective in our communication? Maybe it's because we're talking a different language. We're living in a different world. We we go to our Christian places. We send our kids to the Christian schools. We listen to the Christian radio stations. We go to the Christian bookstores. And we hear from the Christian people what's happening in the world around us. And we become so detached that we don't realize that we're ineffective and we're not communicating. How did Paul know about these pagan writers when he quotes them? Because the context of those writings are paganism. In him we live and move and have our being. As your own prophets and poets have said, we are his offspring. That's not found in the Bible. That's fine in their pagan writings. How did he know that? He must have read. He must have been a part of that. History tells us that Paul was a voracious reader. And he read so that he could communicate. What field are you in and people are you associating with? Are you living exclusively in the Christian bubble? There are so many things that influence people. Music. Do you know what people are listening to? And and it doesn't matter what the band is about. You can find things in just about any music. From country to nine-inch nails that has some that you could probably take and use. Now, I'm not telling you guys to go listen to Nine Inch Nails. That would be a scary thing for a lot of you. But I know a lot of people who have the Nine Inch Nail logo tattooed on their body. Have you tattooed any, N-I-N? Yeah. They're popular. I remember Trent, the leader, wrote in the song Hurt, If, let me see, I wrote it down because I knew I'd forget. He said, I think I wrote it down. Oh, I didn't. If I could start again a million miles away, I would save myself. I would find a way. And he's talking about his addiction to drugs. That's a good thing. Metallica Lincoln Park. Frank Sinatra. I don't know, you know whatever you' listening to. If people are into music, do you know the music they're into, and do you know what it says? Literature: things that people are reading, the books that are out. And what's in the books? I'm reading a book now called "The Book Thief." It's not a quote, "Christian book, but a powerful book. and it's a popular book. Do you know what people are reading? Movies. Ted quoted the movies. People are going to the show. Do you know what movies they're going to? Do you know what messages are there? Is there anything that you can use in that that can connect them to the truth of who God is? I I went to a leadership conference one time at, at the church and the lead pastor said to everyone, do not use movies as illustrations. Just use the Bible. You don't need to use movies. You have enough illustrations in the Bible. That sounds very good, but that's not what Paul did. Because Paul was stressed. He was distressed. He had to reach these people some way, somehow. He was motivated that he cared enough to know where they were at. And you see, if you want to reach the, the Matthews and if you want to reach the Andrews and those who were part of the synagogue or those God-fearing Greeks, those who know the Hebrew scriptures, if you want to reach them, that's fine. You can stay in your little sect. You can understand and stay in those things. But if you're going to reach a Dionysius who's named after a pagan god of drunkenness, If you're going to reach him, you're going to have to go outside of your comfort zone and you're going to have to know what he is about. You're going to have to step out of that little bubble. Or Damaris, who is probably named after a pagan god and is a temple prostitute. And if you're going to reach them, you have to be willing to know where people are at. And God is all Ready there. And you see, that's the thing that struck me about this passage, is Paul is including them already in the work of God, which is what Acts tells us, that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. He's already doing it. He's already setting the stage. So when you come up to someone, God's already been there. He's already ministering to them. Do you know where they're at? Do you know what they're believing? Paul was in the marketplace day by day. He was going around and checking out the uh, things of idolatry. He probably from there went into some of their writings, started reading, finding out what they believed, and then he's there in the Areopagus and he has a discussion and he's able to bring who Jesus is into their own language, their own understanding. And from there, yeah, some sneered, but some believed. And the ones who believed are the ones Paul was trying to reach, the ones who distressed him. Are we distressed? Are we caring enough to see and understand where people are at? Are we expecting them to come to us? You see, this passage so moved me because it changed my idea of what it means to share my faith. It changed how I look at my role, and my responsibility in taking the gospel. I have not changed what I believe. The scriptures are God-breathed. I'm not saying that this isn't what we need. That's why we're doing this series. But if the scriptures tell us and give us insight and illustrations of how we can do these things, maybe we should take heed to them. The reason this passage is so difficult is because it challenges us to do what is difficult. It challenges us to go outside of our bounds and stretch ourselves in our understanding. It makes us accountable. When Paul says, I become all things that I might save some. Do you see your responsibility as saving some or that God does a saving? What did Paul mean? They followed Paul and believed. What does that mean? Can people follow you and believe There is a responsibility that we have. And only you know your realm of influence. We're out of time. I'm sorry, I'm going long. Only you know your sphere of influence of people, what you need to involve yourself in. I'm not going to tell you what music to listen to. I'm not going to tell you what books to read. I'm going to tell you this. You have a responsibility to be distressed about those who are lost, and whatever you can do to help reach those who are lost so that they can follow you and believe, then do it. Do it. In the bounds of Scripture, do it. It is our responsibility. And if you don't know what people are about, if you're just distant, then you need to change. I had to. I was living in a bubble. I didn't go out of the church building. And I was full time in ministry had to change the way I think, had to change the way I talk to people, had to change my approach. I I couldn't just give them the four spiritual laws. I just couldn't give them the road to Romans. I couldn't give them the Ten Commandments. I couldn't just throw this at them and say, here, I'm closing the deal. Do you want to believe? No, okay, that's your fault. I guess, you know, they didn't want to believe. No, I have to do all that I can that I might save some. I need to find out where they're at. I need to dialogue. I need to reason. I need to involve myself. And I need to, first of all, care. Because if we don't care, nothing's going to happen. And so this scripture prompted me to really care enough to involve myself with people's lives. I hope it does the same for us. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this series and just the people we've heard from God that have been able to share with us how Your words in these scriptures have changed and directed our lives. God, I pray that they would continue to do so. I pray that we would continue to learn from these things that are written so that we can more effectively represent you. That we would take a burden for those who are lost as our burden. That it would distress us enough to want to reason. To want to dialogue. To want to become all things that by if any possible means we could save some. God, may we care enough to involve ourselves in the lives of those around us. May we care enough to step out of our comfort zones and expand our horizons motivated by your love for those who are lost. And may we help them to see that you are already speaking to them. They just don't know it. And may we be able to lead them to you. May they repent and believe in you, Christ, the Messiah. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.